Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious God, thank you so much for your word, which is life and truth to us. May we listen carefully to the leading of your spirit so that we can know what it means to be a transformed person from the inside out. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The heart wants what it wants. Have you heard that phrase before? It's pretty common, right? The heart wants what it wants. It's a way of saying, I know I probably shouldn't chase this particular desire, but, but sure, maybe there's some things that aren't great about it, but I can't help my heart. I can't help my desires. The heart wants what it wants. In the HBO series uh, Girls, um, in season four, a character uses this phrase in a conversation with a friend, and the friend replies, you do know who you're quoting, right? And I think, I don't know. Do you know who you're quoting? It's actually Woody Allen. But not from one of his movies, not from Midnight in Paris or one of those other ones. No, you won't find it there. In 1992, Woody Allen ended his 12-year relationship with the model Mia Farrow, the reason being that she discovered he was having an affair with her adopted daughter from a previous marriage, Sunyi Previn. At the time, Allen was 57, Previn was 21. And Time magazine published a famous interview with him at the time. Uh, Walter Isaacson, you might know him from his uh, biography of Steve Jobs, he's an amazing journalist, and, uh, and he interviews uh, Woody Allen, and, and Allen just over and over again justifies his actions as much as Isaacson presses him. She's not my daughter. She's a consenting adult. And then, quote, there's no downside. And then right at the end of the interview, almost as a, a final thought, Willie Allen said, the heart wants what it wants. So the question is, is Woody Allen right? <laughs> Are we just slaves to our desires? In Romans 6, Paul the apostle says, actually, yes. By nature, you are. In a way, Woody Allen is right. The heart does want what it wants. But that's not a good thing, according to the scriptures. So according to the Bible, true freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want, to follow whatever the fleeting desires of our heart might be. True freedom only comes when we are free from our desires, mastery over us. So from Romans 6, uh, Paul gives us three spiritual principles for how to set your heart free. Number one, the reality of spiritual slavery. Number two, the secret of true freedom. And number three, the power of a new allegiance. Those are our three things we're going to look at this morning. So first of all, the reality of spiritual Slavery. Um, I was on holidays recently. I always like to try and read a novel when I'm away. Uh, and this time I read a book by Nick Hornby. You know him? He wrote um, High Fidelity, About a Boy, that sort of thing. He wrote a book called How to Be Good. The title intrigued me, so I thought I'd read it. Uh, and in it, one of the characters muses this. When I look at my sins, and if I think they're sins, then they are sins, I can see the appeal of born-again Christianity. It's not the Christianity that's so alluring, it's the rebirth. Because who wouldn't wish to start all over again? 
quite a stunning statement from an author who's certainly not a Christian. Uh, but actually, Nick Hornby gets to the heart of what Romans 6 is all about. That the grace of God has made rebirth possible. That, that Jesus pulls us out of the rotting coffin of sin and transfers us to being alive again in Christ. It's a very alluring idea, isn't it? But it makes us wonder, if Christianity is all about second chances, then is grace like a divine get-out-of-jail-free card? Is it a license to sin knowing that we will be forgiven anyway? And I've heard people say that to me, both from inside the church and outside. In fact, it's scary how many preachers have made that their main message. That sin doesn't really matter because grace covers it. So don't worry. Paul expected that the Roman Christians might think the same thing. They might think that since we are set free from the condemnation that comes from failing to obey the, the Old Testament law, since we're free from that, then perhaps we can ignore the law altogether and just have laws of our own or none at all. Paul is expecting this, and so he answers the question before they can ask it. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Paul says, by no means. Being free from sin does not mean that we are free to sin. Why not? Well, Paul says, because we offer ourselves as obedient slaves... When we offer ourselves as obedient slaves, we are slaves of the one we obey. Okay, look at that line carefully. That is the key to this passage. So let's unpack it. One of the common beliefs in our culture is that each of us is a free, autonomous individual, right? We create our own destinies. We chart our own paths. We make our own choices. But funnily enough, for the people of Paul's day, that would have seemed incredibly naive. Ancient people assumed that everyone is influenced far more than they realize. There's many higher powers that are exerting their influence on the average person, whether that's a political power or a spiritual power or a cultural power. And I wonder if they were onto something. And I wonder if it's something that we need to remember. I wonder if freedom, the way our culture defines it as compl being completely autonomous, is actually a bit of an illusion. Because is that really true for any of us? Aren't we daily influenced by a huge array of forces, from governments to advertising, our ethnic culture, the prevailing culture, our peer groups? None of us really live in a vacuum. So I wonder if actually, aren't we less free than we really think we are? Paul actually takes things one step further than that. He says, not only are we not free, but quite the opposite. We are slaves. Now, the word slave is totally a trigger for many people. It brings up all sorts of very unpleasant emotions and images, and, and it should. And in fact, it seems that Paul himself is very hesitant to use it as an image. A lot of commentators think that verse 19 um, is actually an apology to those who might be offended, particularly his readers, who are actually slaves themselves. And in Paul's day, a third of the population was, were slaves. So it's very likely that some were listening to this message read. 
But he uses it because he can't think of a better way to illustrate our spiritual reality. As one writer puts it, slavery expresses total belongingness, total obligation, and total accountability. Paul believes that every human being is a slave to something. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Rebecca Manley Pippet uh, puts it this way. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. In other words, we are mastered by our desires. And for Paul, there are only two basic ends to our desires. Either you are a slave to sin or a slave to God. Only two options, no third one. You cannot be neither, and you cannot be both, one or the other. So first, a reminder of what sin is. What does he mean by sin? Well, sin is the dark spiritual power that compels us to depose God from his rightful place as king in our lives and instead make ourselves rulers in his place. Sin is the desire for self-rule above all else. So you believe that your greatest good, your greatest good in your life is either serving God or serving yourself. Serving God or serving sin. Sin, this kind of selfish desire, isn't just an influencer. You know, you think of the, um, the classic Simpsons image of Homer with the little demon on his shoulder, right? That's not how Paul sees it. He's not saying sin is an influencer. It's saying, he's saying that sin is more like a spiritual cancer that grips your heart and spreads itself through every action, every thought, every word. It would be easy to say then, well, if sin is this controlling influence, if sin is my master, then, well, if I'm enslaved to sin, then surely God can't judge me. It's not my fault. I'm just a victim. And yes, it's true. You are a victim if you're enslaved by sin. But not just the victim. In verse 16, Paul tells us that we offer ourselves as obedient slaves. In other words, that we make a conscious choice to offer ourselves as slaves to sin. We offer up our own hands to the shackles. Why would we do that? I think we do it because sin is enjoyable. Sin speaks deeply to our pride and arrogance. It tells us the lie that we aren't really slaves. We're the ones really in control. Our sins aren't that bad. Our vices aren't really that much of a problem. After all, what's a little lie to get ahead? What's a bit of secret envy acted out with a bit of public slander? What's an outburst of anger to feel the thrill of having power over someone who's wronged you? What's a vindictive social media outburst to maintain that feeling of self-righteousness? What's a lustful glance at someone to snatch a moment of glorious self-gratification? Paul says, don't be fooled. 
Sin isn't a few harmless, naughty thrills. In verse 19, he calls it what it is. Paul is very blunt. He says, you are slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Wickedness there is actually, the, um, behind there is a Greek word for lawlessness. You are a law unto yourself. Sin offers a lot of pleasure. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. It's thrilling. It's full of immediate delight. But like an addictive drug, it soon masters you. It pushes you to more and more, even at the cost of all you hold dear. Your relationships, your standards, even your own well-being and happiness. A life mastered by sin is like a life of living death. A life defined by spiritual, mental and emotional decay. C.S. Lewis um, argues in, in Mere Christianity, his book, he says this with trademark Britishness. I love it, right? He, he has, it says that there's a big problem if the basic claims of Christianity are actually true. This is what he says. Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precise, correct, technical term for what it would be. Sin invites you to only see the immediate payoff for sin. Paul's plea is for each of us to see that it's not worth it. If you offer yourself to sin, you are not claiming a life of freedom, but an eternity of slavery, and it will be the end of you. So, why do we need to know this? Why is this actually useful for us? Well, if you're not a Christian, God wants you to see your predicament. He wants you to become wise to the insidious nature of sinful desire. That it's not harmless, that it's not just a thing, but it's a master, and it will master you. And he wants you to realize how enslaved you really are and long for something better. He wants you to look at the Christian gospel and think, if only it were true. Be a good start. And for us Christians, we need to remember that we once were this, that we once were enslaved to sin, but no longer. Because when we forget what it was like to be slaves to sin, it becomes far easier to take the gospel for granted and slip back into old ways. For Paul, the secret to life transformation is first understanding the reality of spiritual slavery, but also needs a second part. You also need to grasp a vision of true freedom. Okay, so we've understood the reality of spiritual, spiritual slavery, so now let's look at the secret of true freedom. The image of a slave becoming free is pretty easy for us to imagine. If you've ever seen Django Unchained or 12 Years a Slave or read the book, uh, it's, it's a, a common story. It's a, a great story that we love to tell over and over again in novels and cinema. 
you know, the, the oppressed slave breaking free of cruel masters and now able to chart their own path and make their own decisions, design their own future. And so we'd imagine Paul to follow that course of thinking too. You were slaves to sin, but now Jesus has set you free. Fantastic. And Jesus says, go and be your own person. Be religious or not, but maybe go to church sometimes if you can, if you have time. But be your own person. Be free. And for many, this is not actually far from the truth. Uh, Lots of people believe in a Christianity of benefits, but not one of responsibility or obligation. So Paul is willing to offend our sensibilities just a little bit more with what he has to say next. He says the only option other than being slaves to sin is slaves to God. And that's confronting, to say the least. It brings up all sorts of emotions that are very reasonable. Surely slavery is never a good thing. So is the Christian God just another in a long line of oppressive powers seeking to dominate and subjugate? Well, let's go to the testimony of some actual Christians. Uh, The apostles, Paul, James, Peter, also Timothy and Jude, all start their letters, their epistles, by introducing themselves as slaves of Christ. They glory in the title rather than be ashamed by it, rather than begrudge it. And their lives don't seem to be lives of oppression and being weighed down, but joy and peace and love. Very strange. And even in Romans 6, Paul argues that having God as your master is something to celebrate. He says, thanks be to God that this is the case. So we're puzzled by it. The world is puzzled by it. The Christian willingness to be bound by God's commands is a puzzlement to the world. Why would anyone willingly submit themselves to God's law, even when it's really difficult and kind of it's not very convenient and goes against what we desire? Why would anyone stay faithful in marriage and celibate in singleness when Tinder presents endless opportunities for romance? Why why would anyone give of their time, money, and resources generously, sacrificially, in the service of others without expecting anything in return? Why would anyone invite on themselves the scorn of society by sticking fast to a book written over 2,000 years ago? Why? Because it is the only way to experience true freedom. As Tim Keller is now famous for saying, True freedom does not come from the lack of restrictions, but by finding the right ones. Most of us are willingly uh, submit to the rule of law in Australia. Why? It's kind of annoying sometimes. I can't do what I want, take what I want. I can't drive at 150 on the freeway. Why would I submit to the law? Because I believe that if I and everyone else follows those laws, we will all be better off. Why would a pianist spend countless grueling hours practicing boring scales so that they can be free to play the most complex and beautiful melodies, pieces? Why would anyone spend thousands of dollars and years of their life in lectures earning a degree so they can be free to pursue the career that, will, that suits their loves and passions? So it turns out that freedom always involves restrictions. 
And that's why Paul doesn't hesitate to say what seems like a nonsense sentence. In verse 22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. How can you be set free to be a slave? Does it make sense? Well, to be God's slave is to realize that you are a creature of divine design. That as your maker, God deserves your total belongingness, your total obligation, and your total accountability. Only then can you be the fully whole human being you are always meant to be. What Paul describes as being righteous and holy. To have a life that echoes the character of God who brings, that brings flourishing to the world simply by being in it. As Campbell reminded us last week, Christians are free from the penalty of sin. That's been done away with. But we're still tempted by sin. The opportunity for the immediate payoff is tantalizing. So Paul urges in verse 19 to us to remember who it is we serve. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Once our lives were marked by this ever-increasing wickedness, moving further and further and further away from true humanity, now our lives must be marked by ever-increasing holiness, moving ever closer to a people who resemble Jesus Christ. Obedience, though, therefore, is at heart a matter of faith. To, to give up your life for the sake of God, to lay down your desires for the sake of His, requires a huge amount of faith because you have to trust that God is not a God who is domineering, that He's not a God who will use His power to crush you or manipulate you. He's not a God who will enslave you for his own ends you have to believe that he is a good loving and just God who is worthy of our complete obedience you have to believe that slavery to sin dehumanizes you but slavery to God makes you fully human so where does that kind of power come from where does that kind of faith come from how can we experience real life transformation it's only possible when our allegiance is claimed by a power stronger than our hearts. There is a power in a new allegiance. In the original uh, Avengers movie, there's this great scene. I'm hoping most of you have seen it, uh, even if you don't like Marvel. Uh, there's this great scene in the Avengers where the big baddie, Loki, big bad guy, he rocks up and fronts up to this crowd of um, people at a concert. And he kind of puts on this whole armor and scepter and stuff. And he, he goes up before them. He does this classic bad guy monologue. It's like you're monologuing. Uh, he says, you were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. I heard this. It like, sounds like Paul. Anyway, uh, you were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. And this one old guy gets up. You know, they all kneel. And then this one guy in the midst of the crowd gets up. And he looks up at Loki. And, and, and he kind of expects you expect what comes next. You, I, I felt like I know what's going to come next. He's going to say, never, like, we'll never kneel to anyone. Da -da -da. 
probably in that voice. Um, but he doesn't say that. I'm so surprised by the next line. He says, not to men like you. Maybe I'm reading into it. It's highly possible. But it seems like the next question then is, then who? Is there someone worth kneeling to? Is there someone deserving of our complete and utter allegiance? Someone so worthy that to refuse him would be to commit cosmic treason. Paul believes there is. In fact, he begins his letter, as he does many others, with a statement of his allegiance. Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul didn't give up his life for the sake of Christ and travel the world and eventually give his life in execution because he was looking for a new hobby. He did it because he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, on the road to Damascus. And it was an experience that irreversibly changed him. For him, the resurrection was unassailable proof that Jesus is the Lord of all. And in that moment, his allegiance was claimed forever. And so Paul, writing to his Roman friends, reminds them that the same thing has happened to them. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the passion of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. The pattern of teaching is the gospel. The very heart of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ died and rose again, redeeming us from slavery to sin and transferring us into his kingdom of life. See, friends, what, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and philosophy in the world is that the offer of rebirth comes not as a reward for obedience, but as a gift, the gift of grace, given in spite of obedience, disobedience, I should say. Not as a reward for obedience, but a gift given in spite of disobedience. Paul is very careful with his language. He says, it's not that we hear the gospel and think, oh, that's really great, and so give Jesus our allegiance. He says very carefully, the gospel claims our allegiance. Not that we take it, but that the gospel takes us. In other words, the gospel of Jesus is so powerful that it claims people away from sin. And when someone's allegiance is claimed by the gospel, something miraculous is wrought in them. God brings about what he promised through the prophet Ezekiel so many centuries before. We heard it read out before. He gives them a new heart and a new spirit. In other words, he, he changes their very innermost being. And this new heart becomes open to receive an unimaginably beautiful truth, and yet one that you couldn't have received otherwise. That, as Paul writes elsewhere in Philippians, King Jesus did not see his equality with God as something to hang on to, but something to let go of so that he could take on the form of what? 
a slave. Jesus took on the form of a slave so that we who are slaves might be free. He confined himself to our humanity. He restricted himself to our poverty. And he gave himself willingly to death on a cross so that we could be free. The gospel shows a God who cannot be an oppressive subjugator just out for himself at our expense. No, it shows us a God who was willing to win us no matter what it cost him. Because to win us, it cost him everything. It brought him pain. This is the God who is not just our master and our Lord, but our father. A father who is willing to have his own heart broken so that ours could be made whole again. The gospel cannot simply capture your interest. It has to capture your allegiance. And unless it happens, your heart will just want what it wants. You'll be a slave to sin. But of course, it needs to be said that the transfer of allegiance happens only once through faith in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, your, your allegiance is shifted. If you're a Christian, then Jesus is your new master. But to see ongoing life transformation, the gospel has to daily recapture our delight and realign our hearts. Because if it doesn't, if we think we can move on from it, if we grow bored of it, then pretty soon we'll be casting glances back at the old life. We'll make excuses for sin and believe the old lie that the heart wants what it wants. And we'll lose sight of how sin isn't just a private thing that harms no one, but something that brings decay to our whole network of relationships. So friends, Jesus doesn't just claim our allegiance. He invites us into a kingdom, a kingdom where Jesus is king and where we are citizens with each other, a community. He draws us alongside others who can hold us accountable to serve God in every area of our lives. He calls us to encourage each other daily so that sin might not harden our hearts again. And to set before each other the beauty of the gospel that has captured our allegiance. And to see again and again and again what it took for God to bring us back from the brink. This kind of community will show the world that having a heart after God's own heart is the only way to be truly free. So let's pray that we would be that sort of community. Heavenly Father, you have gone to extraordinary lengths to heal our hearts and to give us new ones. We have been brought from death to life, from slavery to sin, to servants of the King, to slaves of God. Father, we know that it is good because you're a good God. And obedience to you makes us the kind of humans that we long to be. And yet sin is deceptive and the heart is deceitful above all things. So Father, teach us and train us as a community of disciples to not be hardened by sin, to not glance longingly back at the old life, but to be brought ever more towards the day when we will be like Jesus, who was the freest person who ever lived.
And we thank you that with our new heart comes a new spirit that gives us the power to change day by day. May we be open to his leading. May we be open to what he prompts us, even at this moment, even right now. And Father, for those who may not yet have had their allegiance transferred, I pray the gospel would claim their allegiance today. Capture them, Father, with a vision of the beauty of Jesus, the one who became a slave to win for himself a kingdom of people who were once slaves, but now free to obey you. And we thank you for all these things. These are great things, Father. Amen.